When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared Business. Today, we're joined by Matthias Jungmann. He is the founder and CEO of Moonfire Ventures, a European seed fund which focuses on helping founders at the very start of their journeys and nurturing them along the path to exponential growth. In this episode, he spoke to Linda Yu about why he is passionate about the European tech scene, the new trends that will shape the next decade of tech, and why Europe has the potential to rival the United States and China as the leading location for tech innovation. It's a really fascinating conversation which has a lot to tell us about how venture capital actually works, as well as how it's evolved since the COVID-19 pandemic. And if you do enjoy this, please do tell your friends and share it on social media so others can find out about this new podcast strand. But now, let's go to the episode. Post-war, something happened to our psyche. In Europe, the concept of global domination, you know, it's very, very hard for Europeans to sort of even say those words. I think the competitive nature of the valley is now coming here to Europe. Getting capital, you know, it's never been better. Hello, I'm Linda Yu. Welcome to the Intelligence Squared Business Podcast. I'm joined by Matthias Youngman, founder and CEO of Moonfire Ventures, to discuss the future of Europe's tech scene. Are we about to see a tech investment breakthrough? Europe's tech scene has largely lagged that of the United States, which has seen more tech companies achieve global scale and impact. We'll explore why and how European tech investment is changing. So welcome, Matthias. Before we begin, can you describe how private equity funding actually works? Yeah, sure. No, thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm delighted to be here. And yeah, it's probably a good place to start. The domination of of what we call these different things keeps changing all the time. So it's a very good question to ask. Today, and like I said, it was not the case in the past, might not be the case in the future. But today, if you look at uh, the beginning of the sort of financing, usually you start off with an angel round. So it's friends and family, you may be bringing together a few thousand dollars together, or maybe hundreds of thousands. Um, And then the next step that you go is, is usually here in Europe, it's usually a a pre-seed round. And then you're maybe raising between, let's say 300 to uh, close to a million these days. And then you get into the next bracket, which is the seed round. And there, years ago, actually, 1 million was, was a really successful seed round. Today, it's probably on the on the lower end, but you're you're raising between one million and five million, and then it goes up from there. Series A today again it's starting between seven and ten million, but going up almost some of them have gone up to twenty million, uh, and then it just carries on that way. So it's just the so the next level of financing, and 
And usually, you know, for a founder, there's things that you need to achieve to be able to, to get the interest at each level. But it's pretty exciting times today because we are seeing companies grow ever faster than before. So some of them are just rushing through that whole process where, you know, in, in a very short period of time, you know, they're going from, from nothing to actually raising hundreds of millions of dollars. So what period of time, and if we just um, talk us through Series A, Series B, that comes before, uh, say, an IPO, where they become publicly listed companies. Isn't That's it? right. Yeah. So yeah, there's a Series A is sort of, you know, you like I said, it was somewhere between 7 to 15, even $20 million. You usually have a, a younger team in terms of formation of the team, but you're, you're generating sometimes revenue, sometimes not, but most, you know, most of them are generating revenue and and have a bunch of customers. And then you move on to series B, which is then just a further expansion, maybe extending into, into more markets, more products that you're building out. And then there's, there's probably a few more <laughs> jumps to go through till you get to your IPO. And today, you know, you want to have a valuation somewhere in the region of a billion dollars before you even consider an, an, an IPO. So that's what's colloquially known as unicorns. Uh, that's right. <laughs> private companies, which are worth a billion. So Matthias, tell me a bit more about how you invest um, in, in terms of your European seed fund. So how do you decide which entrepreneurs to support? How much do you put in? For how long? What's your exit? Yeah, so we go in really at the beginning. So we want to be the first check in as a sort of institution. So we look at the pre-seed. We're really excited about the caliber of founders that we're finding today. We'd like to invest in the in, in the best in Europe, and, and that's what we're searching for. And usually those numbers in the beginning are between $100,000 and $500,000, um, where we take a, a small portion of the business, and then we, we look to invest at, at, the, at the next stage, at the seed stage, where we're investing between $1 million, $1.5 and, and looking at ownerships around, you know, let's say 15% ownership. And then, you know, like we see as our job is then to really help those companies, take them to the next level. So we work with them on usually around things like recruiting, building out and, and thinking about how they get their strategy right for their product, helping them find customers. And so there's a whole bunch of stuff that we can be good at looking at how other people did it and the network that we have to help take them to the next level. And also just making it, it's, it's, it's very hard for a founder to know what is it that I need to do to really go the next level, to really then to start to expand. What is the expectations? And so we work very early on to sort of say, say, okay, these are the, you know, three to five things that you need to really do well on to be able to take you to the next level. And, and that's where we feel that we can be very useful and helping them take them to the to the next level of financing it. Mm. So what's your exit? Yeah, so our exit ultimately comes uh, much later. And so for a seed fund, you know, you can sit uh, on deals for probably between seven and almost, uh, you know, 10 years before you see um, a return. So it's very long-term capital. These are being accelerated. Like I said, you know, we have companies that have moved, you know, really fast. You have you know, Hopin, which is a events business, uh, online events business that that was based in London, you know, within 17 months, you know, it went from really zero to 2.1 billion in valuation and, and raised hundreds of millions. This is almost unheard of in Europe in the past, but it's happening now as we're entering into this new era, which is which is driven by basically more things moving online. 
and being accelerated. But this, so this trend was there, but now has been accelerated even faster where certain industries overnight have had to move online completely because of the pandemic, like, like events, you know, they, they have now just become online and, and that's what accelerated that. So it's not just the interest in the business. It's just that they actually, their business has just grown dramatically. The number of customers, the number of users has been nothing like nothing we've seen before. And that's happening in a numerous cases across Europe. Just to finish off this section. So essentially no. when the company becomes yeah. publicly listed and traded and other people yeah. can buy shares that's your exit use or you yeah. you still hold so there there can be three ways that we exit one is like you said on an ipo uh, and and that you know immediately triggers that that you know we we become another type of owner and our, our investors don't want us to be sitting on listed stocks so that's not that becomes a sort of almost like a legal thing but usually you, you have a period of time that you have to stay with the company when they're listed. So you're not offloading right on listing because it actually has an impact on the company if you're owning a bigger ownership. So we sit in a sort of lock-in usually between six and 12 months. But you can also exit through uh, mergers and acquisition. That is probably more common. I would say that probably 70% or something like that. I don't have the exact figure, but I would say from gut instinct, that's probably 70 to 80% are uh, done in that manner. And then finally, you know, you also have us as, an, as a firm can also sell in secondary. And this is a market that didn't exist before where maybe we sell to another investor and then that investor, you know, lives on and takes it to an IPO. And by the way, what's really interesting and, you know, uh, you know another trend in this market is that not only are we doing IPOs, uh, but we're doing different forms of IPOs. And so today there's another concept of a SPAC, which is a reverse listing. So you, you list, but you list through a another vehicle. And that's becoming increasingly more interesting for lots of different players in the market. Mm. Yeah, I think that um, there's a debate about that coming to London, (laughs) isn't there? Because it's a United States thing, a vehicle you're taking money from investors. So just say a bit more about what you think of uh, that coming to London. Well, look, I would say that, you know, I, I like how people say, you know, think that this is something new and that we haven't seen before. I was involved in similar sorts of, you know, concepts already back in 2003, 2004 here in London, you know, so we were doing exactly that. It just was a much easier listing process and you're doing it through a dormant vehicle that sits on cash. And then you do a, a reverse takeover where a bigger business is being taken over by a smaller business that's sitting on cash. And then there you are, you're listed. Yeah, so I think the concept has been around for a long time. I think the reason why it's been revived and become interesting is because it is so hard to list today. There's a lot more rules and regulations than ever before. There was the financial crisis, which you know tightened the screws e- even more than, than, than we had before. And we're seeing that, that, that companies are worth several billions, uh, tens of billions, before they even consider doing an IPO. If you go back from the beginning of tech, you know, Amazon, which is today worth, you know, I don't know how many, you know, we're, we're talking about trillion dollar companies, but when they listed, they were worth $400 million. And so the time it takes today to get to an IPO is much, much longer. And so people are finding new avenues to do that. That's why SPACs have come into play. And there's a, there's a different format, which means you can talk about the future of the business rather than an IPO, you're not allowed to talk about the future of the business. And that's what's getting people excited about that form of IPOing. I want to talk about more about this acceleration and the changes in the um, European uh, tech scene. But before we do that, 
I want to kind of get a picture for, for you to help me describe why Europe seems to lag behind、uh, the U.S. in in terms of these big global、uh, tech companies. The U.S. has Amazon,、um, you know, Alphabet.、Um, You know, so there are tech firms, obviously, that are global in Europe: Spotify, Skype, Booking. dot com. But there aren't as many. But you've described Europe as the godfather of modern science, and the industrial age started here. So why has Europe、uh, lagged behind? It seems. Yeah, so I think that's a really interesting question, and and something that I ponder all the time and scratch my head, and and I have my own theories、uh, on that, and and like I said, I, I you know, and like as you say, my belief is that you know Europe is the godfather of modern technology and science. We were formidable in the industrial age,、um, unique in、uh, globally, and that was. A sort of a, a moment in history where you know very different time for where Europe is today. We, we had global ambitions, global technology, lots of institutions and universities looking at solving really difficult problems, and it was happening here across all the countries in Europe as well. And I think that the post-war something happened to our psyche a bit, and we actually dropped some of those thoughts where. In Europe, the concept of global domination—you know—as a word, you know—it's very, very hard for Europeans to sort of even say those words. But you know, you look at places like China or the U.S.; those are probably a lot more rolls off the tongue a lot more easily, and something that maybe is you know more comfortable in owning that space. And I think that post-war, I mean, it, it, it affected us, you know, and where we were and what happened, and the sort of there was a sort of decline in our presence and prominence. In 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 the global、uh, system, that I think has had a big impact. We still did have those great institutions, and they remained. And I think Europe today is still very cutting edge in terms of how you know we look at modern science and development of research and so on. And it's not just in one country; it's across all of Europe. And there's a lot of great universities、uh, in 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 different places that you know we we don't even expect.、Um, And then you compare, you know, that European continent and the universities across, you know, UK, France, Germany, Switzerland, the Nordics, you know, and and then you compare that maybe to the US, which is, you know, wonderful bunch of states and some universities that are incredibly strong. But actually, if you compare the average, I think the European universities are are pretty incredible. And so, and 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 they're also producing a. Prob- uh, they are producing more engineers and more scientists than、uh, our U.S. counterparts, and so I think that this dormant sort of latent competency and knowledge is now coming into play, and it's finding a, a way of expressing itself. And we've gone from in two thousand and 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 five six we only had one billion dollar company in twenty twelve it moved. To ten, and so that was a big advancement. Today, we have over a hundred and eighteen billion dollar companies, and so what you're seeing is sort of an inflection point. The growth rate is just getting higher and higher. So that's really exciting. But then you add on to that that the valuations are also changing. So when we were content with the number, you know, a billion, today when you look at those hundred and eighteen companies, there's quite a few, or I should say, quite a there's there's in there's let's say in the region of three. That are around the fifty billion mark. You know, there's a whole bunch that are moving quickly into the thirty odd、uh, billion mark and twenty billion and ten billion, and and that's a big change. You know, that we've seen. You know, 
three, four years ago, maybe, you know, maybe longer, four and a half, the concept of a $10 billion company was a total slam dunk. Today it's 50 billion. And so you're having a bigger ecosystem, both in the number of companies, but also the size of those companies. And I think that's what makes it unique. And then you have the underpinning of, let's say, our great education system. And so we're, 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 we're creating a whole new generation of talented individuals that are then going off from these great companies to create their next generation of companies. That's why I think that this compounding effect uh, can really change how we look at the world uh, in Europe. So what what are these uh, 50 billion uh, European tech companies? I love how 50 billion is the new 10 billion. <laughs> <laughs> so you have companies like Spotify, Adyen, uh, you know, those are great names. You know, you have Unity and, um, you know, UiPath is another great one. You know, six years ago, you know, was just building out its, uh, its, its business and today it's worth 35 billion, you know, and, and so... The speed, like I said, is just going a lot faster. But, you know, you, you have companies like Adyen and Klarna, they've been around for a long time, Spotify a long time. But what's interesting is that these younger companies are moving even faster. And so it's really nice sort of undergrowth here that, that that's happening. And so I think you'll see a, a, a bigger explosion uh, going forward. Um, and it's not just the Europeans are getting excited about Europe. We have a lot of international uh, excitement about what we're doing, and there's investors coming from from Asia and so on that have been looking at Europe and investing in Europe. But what I'm seeing now too is the the American interest of their venture capitalists in in the European market is is bigger than ever before. We have, you know, obviously Sequoia has opened up an office, so has Lightspeed, uh, so has General Catalyst. So the American firms are not only investing in Europe, but they're also setting up shop. When I'm looking at businesses, uh, you know, out of my portfolio, you know, before I used to think that maybe 20, 30 percent of the investors would be uh, you know, directly from America. Today, you know, I, I'm, I'm seeing instances where it's over 50 percent uh, coming from the U.S. So they're really interested in, in getting into businesses at the Series A, B and C stage. And the sort of explosion that they saw that, you know, first started off in the Silicon Valley, that then, you know, also happened in, in other cities like LA, New York, uh, Denver, uh, Austin. And then they're seeing that, you know, London, Munich, Berlin, Amsterdam, that those are just very similar sort of next stage of the development of, and growth of, of the, the technology ecosystem. This kind of um, acceleration um, and this turning point, I think that's a really interesting, um, what you're describing is the money essentially following this trend Mm. um, that you're seeing. There's obviously a very complicated set of of issues around um, this ecosystem. So we probe into it a little bit. I think you've seen over the past decade in terms of how U.S. seed funding has flourished. Mm. So on the funding side, just tell me why you think the same evolution is happening in Europe, because this is the stage before the VCs, the American VCs that are coming in, right? So this yes. is something which is much more directly working with entrepreneurs. Yeah, so I think in European seed, I think is going to have a similar evolution that we saw in the US. So today in the US, if you speak to LPs, uh, so these are investors in our seed funds, uh, and other people who are knowledgeable looking at investing into funds, they're saying that in the U.S. there's about 900 seed funds in the U.S. And in Europe, I think we're probably at the level of like 300 to 400, uh, maybe. What I was also seeing in the U.S. is that you're having um, a whole bunch of them. So uh, like 15 to 20 
that are really reputable, well recognized and seasoned. And they have created and been part of the formation of, of wonderful companies that we speak of today uh, that have been very successful, that you know, you know, that that sort of define the success of your of, of, of the tech ecosystem. And and in Europe, we we do also have some great seed funds that are doing a really good job. We just don't have as many of them. I think that what we're going to see is that evolution that you're going to get a lot more seed funds that are going to be uh, successful and they are going to be the breeding ground and help create that next generation of founders. Um, and so I think that today, let's say we have three, four strong seed funds in, in, in Europe, maybe more, and then what, we, what we'll see is that we're going to be moving that up to 15 to 20 of them, and they're going to be creating you know, remarkable returns um, because there is actually more money than ever before at the Series A, B, and C in Europe. So there's two things that are happening there is that these later uh, stage investing, you know, like I said, at the A and B, those companies, those firms have been really successful. So they have also raised bigger funds. So, you know, what they used to have was maybe $150 million funds. They've now moved to, let's say, $500 million funds, and they recently raised those. And so they're more interested than ever to deploy that capital as well. There's also money, like I said, coming from the US. And so I think that in terms of the money looking at investing in, 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 in startups, it's bigger than we've ever seen before. Um, but the good news is too, is that the number of great founders is bigger than we've seen before either. And, and us, you know, their capabilities and, and the infrastructure that exists here in Europe means that they can probably grow even faster. So not only are they better equipped uh, from, from their own experiences, they're also gonna be benefit from an ecosystem that, that can support them to allow them to grow at pace. I want to ask you um, a bit about fintech. So this you've described as the poster boy for European investment and Europe has had early success here. So why has this, in a sense, been sort of an exception uh, to what we're describing generally, where Europe seems to be just a little bit behind the US, but it looks like it's, it's now happening. But fintech is an early success story for Europe. Yeah, I would, I would also, there's other categories where we've been very strong, you know, just let me just talk about that a little bit. I mean, I think obviously music, we've been great and Spotify has become a big winner, but the, there were other music businesses across Europe as well for a long period of time. And then you also have games and Europe has been remarkable in producing some amazing gaming companies. And then early on in fashion, you know, e-commerce and fashion, Europe, you know, again, has had some amazing uh, outcomes there uh, that we were really unique and, and probably ahead of the curve. And interesting also on, on online groceries and things like that, like the UK was, was, was well ahead of, of the US. So there's been areas where we, we've been a, a lot stronger. FinTech has probably had a, you know, there's more broad and it's deeper, but it is, you know, like music compared to financial services, it's just a smaller industry. You know, people talk about Europe, you know, and, and criticize it many times because it's, you know, it's, it's, um, it's very fragmented. There's a lack of talent. And, you know, we don't really have the sort of super hubs, but, you know, in, there's some things we have done right. And comparatively to the U.S., where actually the financial regulatory system in the U.S. is very fragmented. So if you're going to build a, a finance business in the U.S., 
you have to go state by state. So it's 50 states you have to deal with. So it's not like you can have a, a, a blanket coverage that easily. There's ways around that you can then work through other entities that then have that already gone through that painful process of, of covering 50 states. But it's not not as easy as it is in Europe, where if you get a banking license, one part of Europe, you can actually have coverage over all of Europe. There's you know, local regulation you have to abide by, but you, you have a pan-European license. And, and that has allowed Europe to sort of really grow uh, a lot faster and why it's been a lot more seamless because uh, believe it or not, we, we here in Europe have had less red tape on that, on, on that front. And then I think, you know, London as a hub, you know, has been very good to uh, the tech ecosystem and, and, you know, taking people who've, who've been working in, in, in the finance sector and they, they said, look, we want to build new innovative companies that are, you know, solving some of the bigger problems and efficiencies in the system. So that I think has helped the fintech ecosystem, uh, you know, go so well. And like everything, success breeds success. So if you have one level of success, it then creates a new generation who usually want to be more ambitious because they want to beat the targets of the previous generation. And the previous generation also loves supporting the next generation to see how they can they can take on uh, the sort of the new challenges. Mm. So given what you describe about the pan-European um, banking license um, and the important role of London so far, where you're based, are you concerned about London after Brexit? I always have been. You know, I, um, you know, I, I, think, I think it's unfortunate that we are in this position um, because I think, you know, in, in my view, London actually had uh, the best of everything. You know, so he had the access to Europe and actually a lot of the smartest people would wanted to come to, Europe, <laughs> to London to sort of build their fortunes. And so they really benefited from that influx. And then, you know, you can work across Europe and globally, People thought, well, it's easier to start in London and then get into the rest of Europe. And so that was also, you know, another benefit. So I think it's going to be harder. I think it's going to be more complex. Uh, and I think that, you know, London being the first port of call is not going to be as obvious. But I, I'm also, I'm, I'm an optimist. Uh, you can hear this, you know, through this conversation. I, I always believe that the incredible ingenuity of founders to be able to get through adversity is, is remarkable. So I think that, you know, London, you know, can continue to thrive and build something, but I don't think that you can live with your old way of thinking. You have to find new mechanisms to achieve the same level of success. So you're not leaving London. I'm not leaving London. I'm, I'm here to stay. I've, I've been here, you know, long enough. And uh, I, I think it's a wonderful place to live. And, and I love the multicultural aspect of, of being in this uh, uh, city and environment and um, has a lot to offer. And, and when things get back into play, it's also, it's easy, it's easy to travel around the world from, from London. And so you can be connected with the rest of the world physically as well, much easier than maybe smaller places across Europe. I want to ask you a bit about competition. Um, mm. So you mentioned the US money coming in. Of course, um, that does mean there will be greater competition. So what does that mean for essentially the European tech scene? Because some of these US funds are absolutely huge. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and also, you know, what, what would the, what do you think the impact will be on a European entrepreneurs of this greater competition and the potential, I guess, you know, for squeezing uh, European funders a bit? Yeah. So I think that that's probably the biggest risk, right? Uh, I think that 
you know, this is a moment where Europe needs the, the people providing the capital will need to step up. But obviously the founders, this is, this is better, you know, for the entrepreneurs and for, you know, getting capital, you know, it's never been better. And I think we'll, we'll look back in a, in, on a really unique moment. And the changes have been dramatic, by the way, you know, the, during the pandemic, we've really seen the death of geography. So people are Zoom investing, you know, they are sitting wherever they are, putting money in, in different places um, and actually, you know, able to change and probably making more references, checking a lot more because you're sitting at your desk and you can you can do a lot today from your desk, um, which is another point to, uh, I'm, I'm happy to get into in terms of being, um, uh, you know, new approaches in, of using data in a different way. Um, but if we start with like European funds being, you know, uh, potentially squeezed, um, what it does mean is that we need to step up. And I think the competitive nature of the Valley is now coming here to Europe. And in terms of how we move, how quickly we move, and how much we work on a prepared mind. And so you are ready when you see a great business that this is something that you're excited about and something that you want to do. Um, and so the next, you know, the thing that I'm, I'm really excited about and why, you know, I looked also found Moonfire was one about, I mean, I'm so excited about what can be done at the, at the pre-seed and seed. Like, I just think it's such a major opportunity in, here in Europe. The other part is, is building a firm that from the beginning has a data-driven investment strategy uh, is going to be just so critical. Um, so again, I think that there's a bigger shift here. We saw this shift uh, happen in the hedge fund world, where in the 80s, the concept of of utilizing software and data to make your investments was, was, a, was a novel idea. And people were probably more, let's say, stock pickers. And then slowly that has moved to, you know, something that we're very comfortable talking about in terms of algo trading or whatever we want to call it. I think a similar transition is happening in the, the venture world. And as we've created these bigger ecosystems, you know, to say that we're going to continue investing in the same manner by utilizing our, our sort of network, which is more of a manual relationship driven and sometimes very incomplete process and, and, and inefficient. You're, you're dealing with connections and, and, and that can be pretty slow. And sometimes, like I said, you, you can have big gaps to a new way of thinking that's going to be much more data driven because there is so much more data. There are more founders, there are more companies, there are sectors or you know, you're covering the whole spectrum of the economy, whereas before you're only segments of the economy. And so having a data-driven approach, which helps you, you know, from our point of view, it's about helping you make better decisions, being more efficient in terms of how you manage your, your um, the, the number of companies that you're looking at. And then finally, to sort of scale your whole operations and, and help companies become successful. There we can use software throughout that whole process. And, and, and for us, what's really exciting is, is looking at, at, the, at these earliest stages, you know, we are looking at people and looking at how we can see movements of people, you know, understanding, you know, what could be good categories of people and using technology and data to support, you know, what was probably very much a, a, a gut instinct sentiment. So here we're moving that and making institutionalizing it so everybody within our organization can benefit from you know, years of experience, no matter how long they've been in the industry and make better investments. So we call it being a, a kind of bionic investor. 
You know, so it's not sort of saying we're going to replace humans with machines. What we're going to do is we're going to let humans become more efficient and faster and, and, and see more. Mm, using data. Great yeah. term, bionic investor, Zoom yeah. investing. Um, so what is this, uh, this, um, this approach? What are the most exciting tech trends that you've seen looking at uh, the data um, that's augmenting uh, your people? Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly right. It is really an, an augmentation. And, and uh, you know, for us, we see that, that within financial services, there's a lot more that's going to uh, continue to happen. We have very old systems in place today, and those need to be replaced. Some of the, the banking systems that, that these old banks are sitting on, you know, they could be decades old. And we need seamless, quicker, more efficient, and sometimes cutting out um, a lot of the middlemen in time and in some ways moving that over to the customer. So ultimately the beneficiary will be the customer and then having, you know, some, you know, processes where even how you market and acquire customers can be a lot cheaper and, 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 and not as, you know, just a broad brush of, 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 of uh, marketing to try to onboard customers. Um, then there's like, you know, there's really interesting what's happening in the crypto space. You, you've seen a resurgence of, of, um, of the whole blockchain area. And, you know, we're going to see a lot more interesting uh, novel innovations coming from there. And, you know, what we call decentralized finance and, um, you know, that will build whole new platforms that will see payments done in a, in a, in a very different way that can for example, be continuous, you know, rather than that there are spot payments. So if you're working somewhere or working, producing something, you're paid as you produce it, uh, rather than waiting 30 days or 90 days to get paid. So there's, there's systems that can be brought in there. And then, and then I, you know, there's a lot of other exciting stuff. If, if you want me to talk about <laughs> No, it's about absolutely, yeah, no, it's absolutely fascinating. Um, I think we could probably spend a whole hour just talking and defining blockchain, but basically yes. a digital public ledger, it's um, being looked at by all sorts of, not just private banks, but also central banks. It's also the basis for um, something that's uh, coming to the news, which is NFTs. Yes. Non-fungible tokens, um, which are a way to invest in so you can own digital imagery. So just explain what it is and is it a fad or is it a way of owning digital art um, that's here to stay? Because it's based on Ethereum, isn't it? One of the other platforms as well. Yeah, it? exactly. So Ethereum is one of the ways you can use it. You can also use it on other blockchains. So essentially a, a, an NFT, a non-fungible token means that you know, it's not, it's something unique. It's something, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a digital product that's one of a kind. And I think that's what separates it from all other digital products. So if you look at Bitcoin, if you have one Bitcoin, you can replace it with another Bitcoin and you can't really tell the difference between the two of them. Just like, you know, a pound coin and another pound coin, you know, they're, 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 they're kind of similar. In the digital world, what's different from the physical world is when they are similar, you, you know, like there really is no difference. Like there's literally not that's, you know, like it's, 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 it's very much, you know, pretty much the same. And so the concept of having something that is unique and that there's only a unique number of them, you know, whereas today you, you can many times produce infinite versions of something. So um, if you praise, produced a, an art form, uh, let's say a, a picture of myself, I can then produce billions of versions of it. No problem. But if you build it in the blockchain using NFTs, you then create, you can say, look, there's only one version of this. There's one picture of me. 
and then you, you cannot replicate it on that blockchain. It's impossible of that exact picture is gonna be replicated. And the reason why this is like so important is that our identities are increasingly becoming more digital, whether we know it or not. Like think about your day, how much time are you corresponding virtually through your phone or through Zoom or <laughs> through other mechanisms is becoming, you know, obviously in the pandemic, it's, it's surged. So you can almost say that maybe 70, 80% of your, your, your conversations are happening through this, what you can call the metaverse, of, of, uh, you know, which is our, our, the internet world that we're living in. And if that is the case, us as human beings, we also need an identity. An identity is just so important for who we are. We want to show a little bit why we're different from everybody else. So we're just not just another number out there. And by being able to own art or own uh, different digital exclusive forms of content or whatever else it is that we can then apply to our identity and that is uniquely ours, you know, it replicates exactly the behavior that we have in the, in, in, in the offline world of wanting to own a special car or wanting to own a special piece of clothing that's uniquely yours. And that's where I think, you know, it, it's going to be a huge change and, and it's changed things for artists in particular, creators in general, because most of the time the distribution and the ownership of that art um, has ended up in the hand many times of middlemen who get who profit from it. And here you can have a direct relationship with an artist, with uh, an end customer. And not only that, when that end customer sells it, you can program that when they sell it to somebody else, and let's say they bought it for $100 and they sell it for $1,000, that the artist still gets a commission on the next sale. So then they also have built an annuity for themselves. So I think that this can change you know, again, you know, how, how the creative world is, is, is being done, but there, there's loads of different versions of this um, going forward, like, um, like I said. So do you own any digital art? I, I actually don't own digital art. I own digital various NFTs, to be honest. I haven't bought any art. I, I'm really interested in it. I will own digital art. They've actually gotten quite expensive at the moment, so you know you have to find a unique artist. But there will be many more unique artists. But it's 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 really become a craze, and things have moved fast. Just to you know illustrate, you know, there's within games there are people who are buying land for the you know for value of 1.5 million dollars. So you know we're talking. This is not itsy bitsy pieces of money. You know it's 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 institutional grade of money where people say, well, look, I own this unique set of land that I know that there's only going to be produced very few of them. And so I'm sitting on potentially something that can grow in value. So somebody paid one and a half million for a piece of land in a video game. That's right. <laughs> Crazy as that sounds. Um, so if this game becomes successful, this person, these, this entity or person, whoever bought it believes that they're going to be sitting on something that can accrue in value over time. But there's artwork that's also going for, hundreds of thousands and, and so on. And so there, there is a bit of interest, but I would, you know, I, I would watch out here too. I think one thing you have learned, you know, being in the tech industry, there are cycles and there is craze and people get really interested in something. And then there will be a moment where there is a re-evaluation and, and, you know, people can lose money on it. But my belief is that the overall trend in the long term. so if you have a 10-year 15-year, you know, horizon that, you know, it can come good, but not, not everything will. But 
I think if you love this concept and you want to be involved in it, this, this could be really interesting to be a part of it, but also be very patient. Mm. Well, I look forward to hearing what uh, you do with your NFTs in the future. <laughs> but, uh, well, um, to wrap up, we know that uh, in the US and China, um, these tech companies are so big um, that they even have an acronym just for them. So the FANGs in China, BAT, what is the European acronym that you expect we'll see I, in the future? You know, I haven't, I haven't thought of it. To be honest, but there, there, there's no doubt that firms like who are already in the in the 50 billion, like Spotify and and uh, Adyen, are going to be there. There's going to be, uh, you know, I think, you know, you're going to see a whole bunch of new ones coming into play. It's been so exciting to see as well. I, I've been on, you know, been involved with Klarna for for nine years now, and they're now valued at 31 billion. And so, it's it's who knows? Somebody's going to invent a really exciting word for it. But I think what's more exciting is it becomes even more plausible to imagine for the general people in general across Europe that that companies in Europe can be worth over $100 billion. And I think that's it would be our next watershed. And then after that, we'll be looking at multi $100 billion, maybe $500 billion will be the next thing. And then we get to the trillion. And I think that the, the good news is, is that the, the road there will be faster. That doesn't mean that the demands are not just as high. Uh, I think they might even be higher, but it's possible and we can do it in a short period of time. And we might see a whole new revolution, you know, like you said, a golden age in Europe that I'm really excited to be a part of. So no speculation about the sectors. Um, diff- will it be different than the American and the Chinese giants? I think I, I think definitely think so because I think you know when you're getting at that stage and level you're probably looking at a global basis and so mm-hmm. they have to be ones you know focusing on their unique segments but I think we'll we'll just have to wait and see but you know it's it's um, it's going to be really exciting and I think that it, you know we we have some amazing founders here in Europe and their ambition levels are just getting higher and higher so we have to be patient let them grow. Well, I wrote down S and A so far, so we'll see if they make it into the European acronym of the future. But it's been a absolutely um, so interesting. Um, thanks very much uh, to Matthias Youngman, founder and CEO of Moonfire Ventures, um, for just a really stimulating uh, discussion about how the European tech scene is changing and giving us a glimpse of the future from the perspective of somebody who's funding um, some of these very exciting European entrepreneurs. So thank you very much, Matthias, for a great discussion. I'm Linda Yu.